Macalliard to Stokes, who's onside. What a goal! Sims. It's a good serve this from Southampton. They could finish the job here. Welcome, it is uh, now episode 94 of the Saints FC podcast and uh, ladies and gentlemen, um, Tom Parker is not with me uh, today but never fear because uh, we've got a bit of a blast from the, from the past from this podcast and an old friend of the podcast, football author, writer, podcaster Michael Cox joining us on the line. So Michael, how, how the devil are you? Yeah, very well, thank you. I think it's been three years now since I was last on this podcast. So yeah, thank you very much for having me back. It, ha- it has been a long time, Michael. So I was looking back, it was episode 16. So the kind of relative early days of the Saints FC podcast when when you joined us before. Um, and newer listeners to this podcast, because our numbers are a little bit bigger than they were back in episode 16, you should go back and have a listen to that. Uh, it was Michael talking about his uh, book, The Mixer, um, which is kind of a 25-year Premier League history. Am I remembering that right, Michael? Yeah, that's fair, yeah. Yeah, I, d- I know quite a few of our listeners kind of messaged afterwards and said they'd added that to their Christmas lists and then uh, mentioned that they'd enjoyed the book. Um, we were going to do a podcast, I think, last summer about your second book, Zonal Marking, The Making of Modern European Football. We missed that one. And Michael, you've apologised to me. You said it's one of two appointments in your life that you've managed to miss, which kind of made me wonder what the other appointment was. Yeah, I, I actually, I, I can remember it was a, yeah, it was another podcast I was doing for um, for a betting company, which was bad. But yeah, no, I, I apologise for that. I'm pleased we've managed to, uh, yeah, reschedule this appointment. And very coincidentally, I should say for the listeners, we didn't just say wait until Southampton play really well and we can do the podcast. It was in the diary for a couple of weeks. And uh, yeah, obviously the performance against Everton was uh, well the best of the season by by far, I would suggest. Yeah, it was, it was absolutely fantastic. I, I want to get onto that in a moment, but I, I do need to big you up, Michael. So it's kind of one of the things that you get if you're being a special guest on the podcast. So um, also since we last spoke, so that, that um, zonal marking book, I'm going to thoroughly recommend to... Um, all of our listeners it's, it's really great especially if you're interested in you know football from around the continent and around the world actually it's an absolutely great read but if people want to get you regularly they they need to sign up to the athletic don't they because you that's where you're writing two or three articles a week and you're putting out a, a weekly podcast the zonal marking podcast which i was just having a look over some of the, the recent episodes some very interesting ones bad stats <laughs> Where are we getting it all all wrong when we're talking about football? Uh, why have there been so many goals in the Premier League this season? And AC Milan, the history and reawakening of a sleeping giant. So there's some really interesting um, topics there. Do you want to give us a little taste of uh, the bad stats one? I'd love to know. what What's the worst stat that we regularly <laughs> refer to in, in, footballing, in the footballing world? Just so I make sure that I avoid it in the rest of this podcast, Michael. Uh, yeah, so that was fun. So it's a, the podcast is really all about the kind of tactical and statistical stuff about football. And uh, yeah, bad stats was, I would say it was almost like room 101, but just for football statistics. So it was just, uh, 
yeah, 40, 40 minutes of us moaning about statistics that I use that we don't like. I think my biggest bugbear is um, just comparing kind of managerial win percentages over time. So, for example, I mean, Unai Emery had a higher win percentage as Arsenal manager than George Graham. Um, I think most Arsenal fans would agree that George Graham was the better manager, but just the levels of inequality in football have increased so much that the big sides just do win more matches and, and, you know, the bar is much higher for those managers. So that's one of those things I just don't think really makes sense. But yeah, there was lots more of that um, stuff about kind of past completion rates that are kind of slightly misleading. Um, so yeah, it was a fun episode. We do uh, we do one a week, and if you're into the kind of tactical side of football, then uh, yeah, hopefully it's for you. Yeah, great. I, I, well, you know, it's the right audience here, Michael. Football supporting <laughs> podcast listeners there. So uh, go and check out Michael's um, uh, podcast. That's called Zonal Marking. Is that right? Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, um, we'll get on to the Saints game now. So, Michael, I think you admitted to me this is the first full Saints game you've watched this season. Like the, the first time you've dedicated a full ninety minutes to us, is that right? I think it might be, which which makes me feel bad because uh, yeah, I mean I've tried to watch as much football as possible, especially in the opening weeks where everything was on TV. So I I, I watch kind of at least extended highlights of of every game and make notes on everything. But uh, yeah, I think actually I think I saw mo- I saw the Tottenham one as well actually, oh, but obviously we'll we'll probably <laughs> skip over that one. So yeah, the, the second full game I've seen, but uh, yeah, it was obviously a good one to catch because. Uh, yeah, two two sides who'd started the the season very well. Obviously, Everton in better form, but I thought Southampton were very convincing. I mean, obviously went two 0 up in what thirty five minutes, um, and just looked comfortable from there. I thought. Yeah, I I, I thought it was a, a really a really good performance from Saints, and I, I think if if we go through the kind of game a little bit chronologically, and then talk talk about the kind of um, the kind of larger picture points, I, I think that would kind of paints quite a nice picture of, of where we're going so yeah I, I thought the game started off really well with actually both teams going for it quite a nice uh, tempo going and then one thing that we we've seen from one of our players this season is Redmond is yeah missing a lot of chances or, or not quite kind of <laughs> getting things right in the final third and true to form the first chance fell to him and he scuffed it wide and it was a really really good chance but I suppose most promisingly, a sign for things to come for Saints and the fact that we kept on managing to break through those lines and create those sorts of chances in front of the Everton goal. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Redmond, I think, is a kind of player who I really enjoy watching him and I think he's got great talent. I do find him quite frustrating because I think sometimes his end product just isn't quite good enough. But he's also the kind of player who I always think whenever when every season comes around, He's a kind of player that could just explode and just kind of get the knack of finishing and become a player who scores, you know, 10 goals and assists 10 goals in a season. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think of all the sides in the Premier League at the moment, I quite like Southampton because, you know, from a kind of neutral perspective, from someone who, um, you know, watches the tactical side of games, they just have a very obvious system and I think it works very well. I think all the players seem to understand their duties. Um and I think Redmond and, and Armstrong, who um, I thought wasn't so prominent in this game compared to how he has been in some of the previous games, but I think their roles are just so important, just coming inside from the wings. And, and like I say, maybe not the most prolific in terms of scoring goals compared to some other wide players in the Premier League, but they're so good at linking the play. And uh, I thought this game was particularly notable for the the fact that all the width came from fullback. I thought Bertrand in particular was was 
always free past James Rodriguez, who I think has been magnificent for Everton so far, but obviously defensively isn't the best. Um, I think in other games it's it's been Walker Peters who's who's almost looked more dangerous down uh, down the right, but Bertrand I thought was excellent here, and uh, yeah, they just seem to fill space really well. I think more than anything else, they just uh, always had width and uh, and also always had players occupying the central zones. So I thought Everton just struggled to cope in the first half. One of the um, recent uh, articles I read of yours, Michael, was about the the death of the number ten. Um, so I don't know if you've heard Ralph Hasenhutl talking about it, but he talks about Redmond and Armstrong being number 10s, which mm-hmm. is quite strange because, you know, to, to us, they kind of look like wingers, but it's all about that sort of dropping in behind and kind of slotting into that number 10 role behind Che Adams and, and, and Danny Ings. Have you, do you think there's anything in that or is that just a kind of like lost in translation between the kind of Austrian... Uh, history, <laughs> Bundesliga, and then the Premier League. But you know, he he insists on calling them number tens, and he was interviewed quite recently about saying that he and Armstrong had a, a few difficulties actually when they first started working together because he was trying to convince Armstrong that he was a number ten. But what we've learned is Ralph Hasenhüttl's number ten is slightly different from I think the 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 universally accepted number ten role. That's really interesting. I hadn't seen that about the the chat with Armstrong. I mean, yeah, I completely get what he means. They're not playing as as conventional wide players in the four four two. You know, it's almost like the four two 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 that uh, Brazilian sides used to play a lot, maybe ten fifteen years ago, and and obviously all the width coming from the fullbacks. Um, yeah, so I completely get what he means. I wouldn't necessarily call them number tens, but they are in a position more like number tens than than wingers, certainly. Um, I mean, I think the the crucial thing when you play that system, and I think something Southampton done very well so far this season is. If you've got the two wide players coming inside, you've got to have good movement into the channels from the forwards. Um, and I think that has been the case. I think Che Adams obviously has done that really well and set up a couple of uh, Danny Ings goals. And Ings uh, on uh, on Sunday, I mean, obviously got the two assists, but I thought just in general, his movement into the channels was so good and rewarded for that by setting up both goals, one from the right for Ward-Prowse and one from the left for uh, for Adams. So, yeah, it, I mean, it, like I say, it's a very it's a very predictable system in terms of I know how they're going to play each week, but I think they carry it out really well with um, great clarity and cohesion. And uh, yeah, just a, a lot of the passing moves, I think against Everton were really good. Just passing it. I think for the second goal, basically went from back to front and all the players just seemed so sure of the pass they were going to play next. And I think that obviously comes from work on the training, uh, training ground with Hazen Hootel, who uh, I believe works on that kind of build up play uh, a lot. And, uh, yeah, it was just a really slick, controlled performance, I thought. It, it really was. And I've got to say, one of the players that really um, caught my eye in the, the game uh, on Sunday, and um, he, he even had a, a shot, his second shot of the season, which was uh, Oriol <laughs> Romeo. Um, so he's had, I think he's had two shots this season now. One, that, that volley he scored a, a couple of weeks ago. And then this one, which, you know, not a bad shot from distance. I mean, it got it on target relatively easy, say, for Pickford, but he still had to get in the way of it. But Romeo's passing and the forward motion that he's he's now going through, I, I think, you know, he's he's been at Saints long enough that you would have seen him before. And he, you know, a very kind of, I, I suppose he has a, quite an ordinary role in the football team of being that sort of destroyer and then give mm. it to someone else who can pass it. But this season, he seems to be able to pass forward, pass sideways, start attacks, bring it from defence, which is something we've just not seen 
I don't think from him before. I mean, did you notice him particularly in, in this match? Yeah, I thought he was really good. I think, you know, especially playing to the left of of that midfield too, I thought he had responsibility for picking up Hammers when he came inside into those pockets as well. And I think I think Hammers Rodriguez probably had his, well, definitely had his quietest game since he's joined Everton. So, yeah, on both sides of the game, he was he was impressive. And yeah, like you say, on the ball, he's, I mean, he's always, he's always passed the ball kind of with a, a certain sense of authority, if you know what I mean. He's kind of quite... Um, what's the word he's almost like quite intimidating I think the way he passes the ball just because he's quite he's quite a big imposing figure but like you say maybe this season we're seeing a little bit more from him in terms of the, the you know the distribution into dangerous positions but yeah I thought I mean I thought the midfield two played really well Romeo and, and Ward-Prowse I think they've I think they both come on a lot under under Hazen Hill, particularly Ward Prowse. I mean, you've probably spoken about this before on the podcast, but from my perspective, sometimes I'd I'd, I'd watch Southampton games and I'd not really know what he was either than uh, other than a, a brilliant set piece taker. You know, he played right back, he played right wing back, he played right wing, he played central midfield. He, he kind of did a bit of everything. Whereas now he seems like a really authoritative cent, uh, central midfielder, and um, I thought he was another one who played really well in this game. And I thought the goal was quite underrated really he didn't seem to get that much attention you know on match of the day or on social media or whatever but I mean he just created it himself out of nothing with a, a lovely touch to receive the throw and then a, a brilliant finish from a tight angle and I Pickford's not in great form but I thought that was almost unstoppable so yeah I mean the, the central midfield too I think it's not often you see in the Premier League these days it's not often you see you know, a proper two-man midfield, almost an old-school two-man midfield. So many sides, including Everton, are playing a holding midfielder and two just ahead. But, you know, they, they really hold their position well and uh, certainly against Everton just dominate the game. Yeah, it's, it's, it is interesting. I think there's a few throwbacks actually here in the, in the Saints team. Um, I'm going to ask you a question about uh, whether we're making a, a 1990s throwback with Che Adams and Danny Ings kind of picking up this sort of strike partnership that that seems to kind of remind me back of the kind of late 90s and Premier League era. Um, that, let's talk about these goals because absolutely fantastic. The James Ward-Prowse goal, I totally agree. It had all the best things about James Ward-Prowse in it. And, um, you know, apart from perhaps maybe a, a tough tackle. And when you were speaking just then, Mike, I had a bit of a smirk on my face because my co-host, Tom, he, he used to always bring up the question, what is a James Ward Prowse? And it used to be <laughs> a, a question that we discussed probably every, you know, six or seven episodes of the podcast. He'd bring it up and just be like, John, but what is a James Ward Prowse? What is the point of him? You know, he has these qualities, but nobody knows how to use him. Uh, and mm. Ralph Hasselhittel seems to be the first manager that's really managed to work out what James Will Prowse is and can do. And, and I think some of the nastiness he's brought to his game has been really important. The um you know the the fact that he's been involved in winding up opposition players is <laughs> yeah, a vast kind of um it seems oceans away from where he was I think under Claude Puel said, you know, he'd be the perfect um son in law, which I d I don't <laughs> think was um a compliment, you know. Yeah. Yeah, and I thought that, to a certain extent, I thought that epitomised Southampton when you were, you know, towards the towards the bottom end of the table. I thought there were just some players who just seemed a bit too nice, really. I, I think you're right. I think you did need a little bit of that aggression. I'd say that for a couple of other players in, in the side. But, yeah, I mean, it's been impressive because I, I must say I really didn't expect him to become a central midfielder. I just never really saw him and thought he had... I mean, obviously, he's got great technical ability and possession, but I didn't think he was the most mobile, the most physical or... 
Um, you know, I, I thought he would become a wide player, basically, probably a, a right midfielder or or even a right back. But yeah, he's he's worked really well alongside Romeo, and obviously Romeo is is quite a sturdy holding midfielder. And I think Ward Prowse has wouldn't necessarily call him a box to box midfielder, but I think he's he's got a bit of license to to push forward into those. Uh, kind of inside right positions, which I think he works very well in. So, yeah, his, his development has been has been very enjoyable to watch. Yeah, and and then so let's move on to the Che Adams goal as well. So he's, you mentioned this one kind of coming all the way from the back, and Danny Ings being involved again, so crossing it from from the left hand side. Um, one of the things that's been very frustrating about Che Adams is he seems to have a habit of snatching at shots. He, he, he almost panics when he gets in front of goal. He, he has this amazing clarity of thought when he's under pressure and creating an assist or creating an opportunity for Dennings or one of the other players. But as soon as the opportunity falls for himself, he seems to panic and quite often not finish it, it properly. He got his goal against Chelsea uh, last weekend and he's got another goal here and one of the things which I really enjoyed was just that he kind of went to hit it then thought about it for a moment and then hit it again and actually scored and taking that third half a second longer I think is maybe the difference between him getting a goal there and, and not not scoring it have you, you managed to catch much of Chadden since he's joined Saints Michael? Yeah, I have. I mean, he, um, he's the kind of player I thought he looked really good when he first came. But yeah, obviously the lack of goals has been an issue. Um, what I think is clear is he's got a really good relationship with Ings. I mean, I think he's set up two for Ings so far this season. Um, there's one against Burnley and one against Chelsea, I think I'm right in saying. Yeah. Um, and that, I mean, it's the obvious thing to say, but that's what you want when, you, when you're when you playing two up front. I mean, if Adams is struggling for goals and, and he's trying to compensate for that by constantly shooting in, in bad positions, then it's not going to work. But I think for as long as you're getting the goal returned from the front two collectively, um, part of which comes from Ings movement, in, uh, sorry, from Adams' movement into the channel, from his selflessness, then I don't think there's any problems whatsoever. And like you say, obviously it's two and two now. And yeah, it was a funny finish on Sunday. Like you say, it's rare that you have so much time in the penalty area to almost pick your spot. Um, but he took it very well. And, and like you say, there's not so many sides playing a proper strike partnership in the Premier League at the moment. So um, yeah, it's nice to see. It's nice to see they've got a good relationship and they're on the same wavelength. And um, you know, to repeat what I said earlier, I think it's really important if you if you're going to play this system with two wide players coming inside, you've got to have forwards who can make almost the reverse run and go into the channels and I think in different ways Ings and, and Adams can both do that and, and that's partly why the system works so well and I think probably this is one of the things which is not so well known outside of Southampton is how well Ings does the all-round build-up play you know in in the in the Saints attacks and the the hassling and harrying as part of the press getting into those wider areas um you know, moving and creating space for for the other kind of forward players to get in there. Obviously, we saw with both those goals, he's there getting getting the assist or making that final pass. And I think that's kind of been one of the the really key things. Well, I don't I don't really think it. I'm going to go out there and say I know it's one of the really key things for us with Danny Ings is 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 how important he is to Saints. Um, you know all-round play and it was it was great to see him getting involved in both those goals even you know despite not scoring um and i mean i've been so so impressed with him and in this kind of game which i suppose in many ways was billed as a bit of a dominic calvert loon versus danny ings calvert loon had one of the quietest games 
going. Um, and I know he was missing his partner in Richarlison, which I think was a big relief for, for Saints. Um, but Ings was looking the much, much more accomplished player in this match. Yeah, definitely. I think it's been probably a theme of of uh, English strikers who've done well in, in the last couple of years that, you know, neutrals focus on the goals, but there's so much more to it. And I thought there was an interesting interview with Hasan Hill at some point last season where he was talking about Ings and his pressing ability. And he, he didn't just talk about him in terms of, um, you know, energy and tenacity and work rate, but also like, more more the decision making as well like it was it was he decides when we press and when we don't because obviously it needs to be done from back to front and i think that was quite an interesting way of, of putting it because i think people sometimes think pressing's either you do it all the time or you don't but i think southampton tend to you know pick their moments very well and it's been something that by and large has been been good about their their game since hasn't Hill took over and yeah his his work in deeper positions i mean it's probably more obvious in this game because he got two assists but He's not just a goal scorer, as, as Southampton fans will know. And I think the more you see of, of strikers these days, a lot of them are like that. I mean, Harry Kane at the moment is getting great praise for his assisting ability. I think Jamie Vardy, who in one sense is the most one-dimensional striker you'll see in the Premier League, but I mean, he's a good cross of the ball. He, he works well in deep positions when he has to. You know, there's, there's no such thing as just a classic number nine anymore. And uh, yeah, I think Ings is one of the players who epitomises that. It's, it's funny talking about the pressing. I mean, Hassan Hutel calls that his automatisms, which is uh, you know, a new <laughs> word that we've all had to, to learn. Um, but I didn't realise it was down to the Ings. I didn't realise Ings was the, was the kind of starter of that. I mean, I always thought that the players were just kind of looking for a particular pass or something that happens on the pitch. But, you know, it makes sense that there has to be one leader for that. You know, there's everyone, no one's surprised when, you know, there's an obvious central defender who calls all the shots in a back line because you know that's important that everyone's organized so it, it makes total sense that that should be the same uh, pushing forward um it was a real shame that armstrong's goal was disallowed because i thought this was an absolutely lovely finish but it was clear that uh, adams was offside um after and that was the started by a long ball from ings again um and i thought this was it, it was kind of epitomized some of the best parts of saints and um you know, winning the ball back and quickly creating an opportunity and having a, a, a lovely finish. And it's a shame because it, it felt like that first half performance almost deserved a third goal. Did you enjoy the the, the uh, disallowed goal or did you kind of always know it was offside and, and not get excited about watching this one? Um, I, I use one of those I suspect. I'm, yeah, without one to go down this route, I'm, I'm a VAR sceptic. I really don't like it. And almost every goal that goes in now, I'm... I don't react as uh, as you should really w w when a goal goes in because I always think there's going to be a flag up or it's going to get VAR. But yeah, it was it was a good move and Armstrong's another player who who I really like. He just links play really well and and he's good at popping up in dangerous positions as well. So uh, yeah, it was a shame it got shame it got over ten. I don't think three 0 would have been flattering really on Southampton. I thought they were by far the better side and and in the end the second half was probably more about controlling the game than trying to uh, knock up a big score. But yeah, it was uh, yeah, a good performance. I think almost every player played well, actually. It was one of those rare performances where, you know, they probably came off the pitch and I think every player would have been really satisfied with their job. So yeah, it was yeah, almost complete domination, I thought. Hard one to call, I, I think, think the the man of the match. And it's quite a relief, I think, um, in my view, that the second half was, was less interesting and less happened uh, because... The Saints game also clashed with um, another sporting event that I was particularly interested in, 
uh, which was the Giro d'Italia finale. <laughs> and uh, some of my followers will, will know because there was a bit of Theo Gegenhardt uh, propaganda uh, popping up on, on, on my timeline during the, the game, which was quite quite rare. But we had the old two screens going. And um, Theo Gegenhardt, for those that don't know, kind of uh, comes from Hackney. And I used to be part of the same cycling club as him. Only went for one ride with him. Um, when he was about 15 years old, we, we set off, we did about 30 miles at over 20 miles an hour. Everyone in the club stopped for a cake. Teo kind of went on for another 30 miles and then overtook every single person on the club run on the way back in, despite having done the extra 30 miles. <laughs> and and the, what, what I think is kind of really lovely about him and a really good measure of that, so my wife Sophie was with me, we were absolutely knackered. We were sat on the side of the road, just kind of eating every last bit of uh, food that we had with us, trying to get enough energy to go back, basically because Teo had killed us in the first 30 miles and he stopped to check that we're okay and I don't think there's that many 15 year old elite sport a- athletes that that would you know stop and check on people that they've only met that one time so really lovely guy really delighted for him winning the Giro but it did mean that my attention was slightly <laughs> slightly arrived for the second half but you know I, I did spot a, a few things and I think kind of the big talking point afterwards which has frustrated a lot of Saints fans because I think we wanted all the pundits to be talking about how well Saints had done. Was um, the Digne the Dean? I don't know how to pronounce his name. The Digne red card, which got a lot more attention than I thought it kind of necessarily needed. And I, I can see why people say, "Oh, you know, he's only trod on the back of his heel." But it it came after you know a good few seconds of him trying to do everything that he could to kick Kyle Walker Peters after he robbed him of the ball. And I think it's that was the sort of intent that was that was missed from the narrative afterwards. But what, what did you make of this one? I mean, you're a neutral, so obviously I'm all for the red card here. Yeah, I mean, I was the same as you. I uh, was watching the, the Giro time trial as well. I mean, Bradley Wiggins said on commentary that, you know, he's such a big name in the cycling, uh, London cycling community, but it seems to be really true. Everyone seems to have had a meeting with him at some point, uh, including yourself. So, yeah, it's, it's an amazing uh, achievement from him. Yeah, on the red card, um, oh, I... Honestly, I don't know. It's one of those where it's all about intent, isn't it? It could have been, if if it was intentional, it's a really, really nasty one. If it was accidental, then it's just one of those things that happen in football. I would probably lean towards it being intentional. Like you say, he was trying to trip him um, in the moments leading up to it, whether he wanted to trip him, you know, in that, in a kind of aggressive, dangerous way. I don't know. He might have just been trying to flick his boot and bring him down. But... Um, I, yeah, I, I mean, I don't think there's any chance of it being overturned because it's one of those that's not clear and obvious. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't blame the referee for interpreting it how he did, but obviously that was uh, that was game over at that point. Yeah, I think it's one of those ones like kind of when you're fighting with your siblings, perhaps, and it's like, well, yeah, I, I'm, I mean, I meant to hit my brother, but not that hard. <laughs> I didn't really want to make him cry. I just wanted to give him a shot, and I think that's almost what Dinya was trying to do to Carl Walker Peters. Was like, how dare you? you know tackle me and rob me and run away with the ball I think it was a he was maybe happy to take a yellow and give him a little kick but don't think he necessarily wanted to kind of leave the studs in but if he did it was it was quite quite nasty and I think you know you're right after that the game was was pretty much finished done and dusted Everton didn't really bring um very much and I thought Saints were, were kind of very well controlled throughout throughout the rest of the the match and um Tom McCohey's kind of mentioned this to me he thought this was our best performance under under Ralph Hasenhutl I mean certainly it was our best performance this season I'm not entirely convinced by it being the best performance ever but this Saints side when they play like that look absolutely fantastic and 
Um, I'd, I'd like to know, Michael, what, what did you think about that overall performance? You know, lots of people were talking about Everton not being at the races, but I think that was more to do with Saints having that all-round great performance um, and the likes of Romeo breaking up playing, Carl Walker-Peters doing really well and Bertrand you know, bombing down the left-hand side all contributed to, to what was a really, really strong performance from Saints. Yeah, I think they were the better side all over the pitch. Uh, like I said, I think almost every player was was really impressive and I think they, they exploited the weakness of Everton, which I think was obvious in, in their uh, two-wheel draw with Liverpool, which is Hammers doesn't really defend um, and I thought I thought really the route to goal throughout the first 20, 25 minutes, even before the opener, was through Bertrand. So it was a little bit uh, incongruous that the guy actually came from the right through Ward-Prowse. Um, obviously, the second was different. It did come from the left. But that, to me, seemed like something had probably been worked on. And that there is an obvious weakness there with, with Rodriguez playing as almost like an inside right rather than a, a right midfielder who, who um, tracks back. And also Godfrey right back, I mean, is just evidently not a right back he's a converted center back and i thought positionally looked quite weak but yeah saints obviously did very well to exploit that um so yeah it was it was a obviously a really impressive win um i mean it's such a weird premier league table at the moment everything seems so tight but i mean obviously saints three points off the lead at the moment i think the fixtures coming up are a villa newcastle um before the international break i mean i know villa have been doing really well and ahead of uh, Southampton in the table at the moment but I mean you wouldn't be surprised if Southampton got a result at Villa Park and having watched Newcastle a couple of times I'd be relatively confident they could beat Newcastle at home as well so yeah it's, it's been a really positive start and so far it's been a season of the underdogs I mean Everton is still top with joint top Villa in third Leeds in sixth and and Southampton in seventh so it's been a really exciting start to the Premier League campaign and uh, yeah Southampton won those sides who you know, lots of neutral journalists, myself included, probably don't give them enough attention because, uh, you know, they're, I know you've had a couple of, of dodgy seasons, but you're never, you're really, you know, right at the bottom, uh, aside from the, you know, the first half of last season. And, and in, in the last couple of seasons, haven't been challenging for the Euro, uh, European places as you were maybe four or five years ago. So the side are probably going to the radar. But I think just in terms of being a, you know, a, a, a good side to watch, a likeable side, and, and lots of players who I think, who have not only improved, but also probably still have room to improve further. I think they're just, uh, yeah, a really good side to watch. It's, it, it is kind of panning out to be quite an interesting uh, season. Uh, I've got a question here from one of our listeners, which I'll put to you now. I was going to save it for a little bit later, but I think we're kind of on, on that vein at the moment. So this is from William. Uh, it says, God, I was thinking about Saints Day in terms of the insane season that's underway, but it's likely to get even more insane whether there is an opportunity for a team like Saints to profit from that insanity and what would be the attributes an outlier would need to win the title um, and does Hassan Hittel have, have the key? I think kind of what William's getting to is it's almost looking like a bit like, was it the 2015-16 season when lots of the top six teams were off the boil? Mm-hmm. And it looks a bit like that might be the case again this season. Is there an opportunity for a, an underdog to do something? I mean... I'm from the way the season's panning out, I think Liverpool are probably going to take the title at a canter, but they've got their frailties as well, as we saw with the game against Villa. I mean, what, what, what do you make of this one? Yeah, I mean, uh, and the Van Dijk injury, I think, is a really big blow to Liverpool, even if they are still joint top. I mean, they've conceded the joint most goals in the Premier League alongside West Brom and Fulham, uh, which is bizarre. Um, yeah, I think it's the most open it's been since that season, definitely. 
Uh, I think the the bigger sides will will probably roughly return to the top, but I think a few of them are not as good as they should be. Um, I'm not sure there will be an outsider in the top three or four places, but I don't think Manchester United are as good as they should be. Uh, I don't think Chelsea... Well, I think it would take Chelsea a while to click with so many new players. I mean, it's basically six new first-teamers, which to me qualifies as a whole new team, really. Um, and even Arsenal, you know, have, have, have had mixed results so far. OK, the defeats have been against Liverpool, City and, and Leicester, but they've lost three from the first six. So, you know, they're clearly going to drop points uh, along the way. So, yeah, it's going to be the most open season we've, we've seen for a while. I still think Everton, despite the weekend, uh, do look in good shape. And I think they'll be challenging for the European places for the first time in a few years. Um, but, yeah, there's no reason a side like Southampton can't make a, a decent run of it. And also the the fact that Southampton and, and Everton as well are not involved in European football, I think, will be a, a particularly big thing this year because this, the fixture list is more condensed than ever. I mean, we've got back-to-back Champions League midweeks, which feels up. I mean, we've never had that before. That feels absolutely ridiculous to me, but it's a necessity. Um, and, you know, obviously Southampton don't have uh, upcoming games against European sides, uh, but they will, I'm sure, at some point before uh, before Christmas. So I think that will probably play to their strengths, especially because they are a very energetic side and they do depend on, on pressing and uh, getting around the pitch. So... Um, yeah, I, there are the conditions for a surprise. I, I think that's fair to say. I think in the end, Liverpool and City will be too strong in terms of winning the title. But uh, yeah, certainly the the top six, I think, is more open than it's been for a while. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating, really. And um, I've got to say, one of the, the things is kind of when it's a season like this, I, I want to be going to the matches and going to St Mary's and then watching Saints on the road get these victories. Um, yeah, there's been some really good games. It would have been fantastic to be at Stamford Bridge and watch a 92nd minute equaliser in a three-all draw. But um, I don't know. I seem to be there for the one-nil losses and stuff rather than <laughs> rather than that. <laughs> um, well, one of the the other questions which uh, which I wanted to kind of pick your brains on is is what do you make of kind of Ralph Hasenhüttl's tactics? I mean, there was quite a lot said on the commentary about it being the anniversary of the fixture that we don't like to talk about on on this podcast but you know that's a year turnaround it it is with the same manager I think eight of the starting 11 were involved in in that game as well um and you know we've kind of documented on this podcast that we've we've felt like Ralph kind of shifted his tactics about three weeks after that fixture um when we had the international break and then um uh, we came back and we had the draw against Arsenal at the Emirates where um you guys got at that last minute equaliser. I don't know if you were at that game, Michael, but I think that was almost the turning point for Saints. And, and it seems like we've come a long way in a year and it hasn't been personnel changes. It has just been the tactics, really. Yeah, definitely. I mean, even throughout those struggles, and I think it's obvious that the 9-0 was a, a little bit of a freak result. I, I've just had faith in Hasan Hootel. I think his track record before coming to Southampton shows that he's a really good manager. I think he's someone who hasn't been, as far as I'm aware, has not been kind of stamping his feet and demanding new signings. He's he's very happy to work with the players he's got. He's confident he can improve them. And that's what he's done. And uh, yeah, I think in terms of the organi- uh, organisation of the side, they're just very well drilled. I think everyone knows their roles. And uh, yeah, it's been good to see. It's been nice to see a, a club who, who didn't panic and sat their manager. They, they haven't panic bought players for the sake of it. They've they've kind of had faith in what they've got. And for me, that's 
the best thing about football it's, it's a team game and i think it's you know there's so much short-termism in the game at the moment um that it's just good to see that they've improved like you say without without really doing anything in terms of the wider picture so yeah they've they've uh, they've come a long way in a in a year um albeit i maintain the nine nil was just a a slightly freak result with the early red card and that and it's not often you see a side absolutely desperately trying to hammer goals past the opposition like that it was quite bizarre to watch yeah but uh yeah obviously those days are gone well funny enough the reverse fixture of this weekend's game the, the one at everton was um the next game at home after that and i think that was kind of where everyone was expecting a, a real big effort and in many ways it was worse than the 9-0 and i think we conceded almost exactly the same number of chances to Everton in that game, which we lost 2-1 as we did in the Leicester game. I think it was 25 chances apiece that, that we conceded. So it was really dreadful. And that kind of felt really good. It felt like a real vindication, I think, to beat Everton and just be so much better than them. Um, one of the things, that, so you mentioned you watched the Saints-Spurs game because this is one of the things that Ralph has is, is I think we do have our frailties with this, with the tactics in that if the press isn't, working as effective then the high line can be exposed especially when you've got players like Son and Kane who are so effective at, at linking up and Son with all, all that pace really destroyed us in that, that match I'm I'm still yet to kind of be convinced that Ralph has a really obvious plan B and do you think that could perhaps be Saints undoing if we are going to be trying to push for those European places this year? Yeah, possibly. I mean, that game was quite unusual in, you know, the extent to which Southampton were getting done in behind again and again and again. I haven't really seen anything like that for a long time. So, yeah, I mean, there is it does seem like there is very much one way to play. And, and that's that's how it's going to be. So, yeah, I, I tend to agree with you on that. Um, but I, I guess Hasn Hutu's response to that would be, you know, that's because we work. You know, there, there is a benefit to, to just playing one way because you you perfect that system or you've got more chance to perfect that system than than if you change away from it and yeah you maybe you don't get performances like you do against Everton um if you are you know constantly changing to a different system so yeah there's 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 strengths and weaknesses from from the way that he does it in that in that respect but uh yeah I I'd be inclined to say you know that it's not just been that game that Kane and Son have, have done that you know so I'd be inclined to give Hasn't who the benefit of the doubt and maybe just say they came up against a, a partnership who were in incredible form um, because I haven't really seen any signs of that happening again. I mean, he played against a, a good quick player of the weekend in Calvert-Lewin. I don't think he got in behind at all. So, yeah, I'd be inclined to, to give him the benefit of the doubt in that respect. Yeah, Rich Allison's normally the, the player that causes us trouble with, with Everton and... Um... I think Calvert-Lewin might have been missing him because Richarlison seems to be able to either make that run or make that ball, which which we kind of suffer from. I think one of the, the other interesting points for Saints fans is that the teams that we've really struggled to beat um, since Hassan Hüttel's been our manager have been uh, the kind of more big, physical, direct teams. And so Burnley, West Ham United, Newcastle United, I think they're teams that fans of other teams look forward to playing because they're one-dimensional and you have quite a good chance of beating them. But I think Saints <laughs> fans probably dread playing Newcastle United more than we do playing Manchester City. Um, and I just... I, it, it kind of still confounds me that we can't beat these teams where... We're clearly tactically superior. We have got good players. We should be able to beat them. And they're the ones that really just keep us, 
we keep on coming unstuck against, but it's, it's not a unique problem for Saints, is it, that one? Yeah, you're right. Um, and it's be interesting to see how they go in those matches. Um, and yeah, it's again, you know, obviously looking at things from a neutral perspective, they're the kind of games that they probably go under the radar, Newcastle at home to South, uh, sorry, Southampton at home to Newcastle, for example. And sometimes you get sides like Southampton who are, are very good in, you know, this wasn't against a, a huge side, but it was on, on TV. It was a super Sunday game. You know, they win that and then drop points the next week and it doesn't really get kind of touched upon by uh, by neutrals. But yeah, obviously, as Southampton supporters, that can be a frustration. I think it's those games that maybe Southampton have not been quite quite consistent enough in over the last year or so. So, uh, yeah, it'd be interesting to see how that Newcastle game goes. I mean, Newcastle themselves have often played a, a kind of 4-4-2 system. So if they do that again, I'd, I'd fancy Southampton really to... You know, with a similar system, there's a lot more nuance with the wide players coming inside. I'd quite fancy Southampton to, you know, outplay them quite convincingly, to be honest. Uh, fingers crossed. And uh, that, that'll be another three points for us. Right, I'm going to get onto a couple of um, listener emails, Michael, and see if we can get your comments on these. So the first one is from Saints GT. He's emailing from uh, New Zealand. He says, hi guys, two weeks ago I would have said there was some apprehension with the upcoming matches of Chelsea and Everton, but the play and the results gained showed just how good Saints are as a unit. Uh, this was shown in the back end of last season with the exception of the Palace and Spurs games. This is continuing and clearly shows the work and trust that players and coaching staff have in each other. For the Everton game, this was probably the most complete performance this season. It's difficult to pick any one player that stood above the rest, although he does go on to do this. If I had to choose, it would have been... Uh, the midfield combination of Ward-Prowse and Romeo, who had total control throughout the game. He's actually kind of reflected quite a lot of the views that you've shared with us, Michael, hasn't he? Yeah, I agree with him about the, the midfield duo. Yeah, Romeo sitting there and Ward-Prowse pushing on, I thought worked really well. So, yeah, can't argue with that. And, uh, you know, the, that kind of team spirit, I think the trust the players have for each other is a, is a big thing. And maybe that's one of the biggest things about that turnaround in the space of a year is after a result like that, how, you know, gaining the trust of your players and everyone to kind of be within the system is, is quite, I think, quite an important point. I, I think we have seen that the players that don't trust the system have all been moved on this summer, really, the um, the ones that are kind of slightly maverick in that. So uh, another email from afar, this time uh, from uh, Thailand, so, uh, from Dean Thompson. Hi, gents, I've just endured my trip to work through the hustle and bustle of life here in Bangkok, Thailand. Uh, made so much more enjoyable by listening to the podcast. I mean, it doesn't sound too bad living in Bangkok and Thailand and enjoying the hustle and bustle there but you know <laughs> glad we managed to get you through that um thanks for your continued efforts to getting out there and making such an interesting lesson uh, my question to you chaps is not specifically saints related but more generally about the covid period and the ability to now statistically measure the impact of teams performances uh, with and without crowds before there was a significant bias on home performance results versus away results and i don't know if the actual points per game pre-covid um but most teams on average would accrue more home points than away. The assumption being that home fans cheer on their team and the psychological impact is higher, um, has in, in impacts their higher performances. So his question uh, to the podcast is whether you know what the ratio of home away results is when there have been no fans in the stadium. Has it shifted and have there been enough games now to get a, a, statist a statistically robust um, figure? Have you have you spotted anything on this, Michael? Between the kind of uh, since project restart, the effect that this has had on on the the results. Yeah, uh, 
yeah, it's changed a lot. The the home advantage is is much less. I mean, I think I'm right in saying that there were four away wins this weekend, which means that it's almost completely balanced at the moment in terms of home and away wins. Um, I'm not quite sure whether that is the case in, in other leagues around Europe. Obviously, you can use them to get a bigger sample size. But, um, yeah, I mean, there have been studies into this in the past in other sports, and they kind of suggest that the reason really is is basically because of the refereeing, and the refereeing is, is kind of less partisan, and, and they are less influenced by the, the crowd. They seem to say it's as much that as it is uh, fans getting behind the team um, in, in a more kind of literal sense. So, yeah, I mean, things have changed, definitely. Um, and, I mean, Manchester United is the first time they've gone their first three home games of the season without winning for about 40 years or something. So that's one example of, of how it does seem to be affecting uh, the game and, and yeah, definitely has changed things. So yeah, it's, it's one that we need a, a wider or a larger sample size for, but it definitely seems to be having an impact. Yeah. I mean, we'll certainly have that by the end of the season, I think, because it doesn't look like there's going to be any fans going to stadiums anytime soon. Interesting for saints though, is I think we've had the exact reversal of that. Um, in the fact that you know, last season we had the best away um, record, I think, after Liverpool, and then the worst home record, I think, perhaps kind of shared with Norwich City. So uh, we, we've seen us take more points at home um, since the crowd hasn't been there, which perhaps doesn't reflect particularly well on the uh, support at St Mary's. And, <laughs> um, I think one thing that the St. Mary's kind of fan base do get rather frustrated at the sideways passes, but actually I think if they were there for that game against Everton, it was so brilliant and dominant. I think they would have just been totally up for that. And I don't think they would have got on the backs of the teams at all. Um, so we've got the upcoming fixtures of uh, Aston Villa and then Newcastle United, which which we've touched on. Aston Villa have been quite impressive this season as well. Obviously one of the other high flyers uh, along with Everton what do you think Saints need to do in this game against Villa? What do we need to watch out for? I mean, other than the obvious Jack Grealish, I think Villa have added a a few more decent attacking than died, haven't they? Yeah, they have. I mean, difficult to make them out at the moment, beating Liverpool 7-2 and then losing uh, 3-0 to Leeds. Um, they look a lot better than last season. I mean, Ollie Watkins up front has given them goal-scoring ability, but also movement into the channels in behind, which obviously could be an issue considering, you know, what we've spoken about in that Tottenham game with Son going in behind. I think Ross Barkley's been a really good addition as well. He got that late winner against Leicester, but also in the game against Liverpool was was really excellent. He's been playing almost as number 10, although in the Leicester game they did shift it and played uh, a 4-3-3 with, with him alongside McGinn um, and holding midfielder just behind. So they can play two different ways there. The one thing I'd say about them is I don't, I don't particularly rate the fullbacks. I mean, you you guys will know Matt Target, who's, I think, a solid player. Probably nothing more than that. And, and Matty Cash, who has come in from Forest, he, he's looked good. Uh, certainly on the ball is very good. But defensively, I, I still think he's probably learning the game, especially at Premier League level. So obviously Southampton don't play with, with classic wingers, but I do think down the flanks is probably where they can get some joy. Because I think Villa are quite solid through the centre of the pitch, actually. I think Conter and Mings have a good partnership at the back. Um, and they've got some good midfielders as well. But yeah, down the flanks, I would say, is the area where, where Southampton can probably cause some problems. Oh, we'll look forward to that and hopefully uh, give Matty Target a torrid time. I think he's well liked it in Southampton, but quite often it's the way, isn't it, when a player leaves you and nobody's kind of 
really upset about it, I think that probably tells you, you know, perhaps the the measure of the player. You know, people weren't particularly upset about Matt Target leaving. Some people thought it's a shame, you know, that we weren't letting a kind of another um, youth player develop. But when you compare him to Bertrand, I don't think he's he's in the same league really. So. Um, <coughs> In, interesting point. I think Carl Walker Peters as well has been an absolute revelation for Saints as well. Say, so, um, and and with kind of Redmond and Armstrong pushing up, that that would be quite interesting to see as well. I, I suppose one thing which I'd quite like to get your view on as well is, is what do you make of Saints signing Theo Walcott? It's a very un-Saints signing. We normally, well, we you can see with our other signings in um, the fact that we picked up Diallo and Salisu, who are kind of young. Uh, players who kind of have bright futures ahead of them, allegedly, and uh, you know, have been scouted from you know, different parts of Europe uh, and the world. And and then Theo Walcott is is very different. And you know, where does he fit when you've got the likes of Redmond and Armstrong? Yeah, I mean, he's going to have to play his way into the side, isn't he? I mean, a type of player to to what you've got. But I think in that in the Chelsea game, I think he showed some some good touches and an ability to, to move inside and, and almost play the Armstrong role. Um, could probably play up top as well. I think running into the channels like Che Adams. Yeah, it was just nice to see. I mean, I think there were rumours of him going back to Southampton when he joined Everton, right? And and I kind of wanted him to make that move just because it, it just felt like the right thing to do. And it was just good to see how happy and enthusiastic he was to be back. I've always really liked Walcott. I think he gets a, a harsh reputation basically based upon that silly World Cup call-up. I think without that, people would say, yeah, Walcott's had a really good solid relatively consistent campaign uh, sorry career as a as a premier league forward and and because of the world cup thing and he was hyped into the next pele people think that oh it's been a disappointment but no i, I really like him i think he's a very useful player and uh yeah i'm just quite pleased to see him happy and back at the club and uh yeah i'm, I'm looking forward to uh to seeing where he fits in. Yeah, so I mean, you're an Arsenal fan, aren't you, Michael? So you've probably watched Walcott many, many times. One of the things which actually surprised me when obviously Walcott was coming back and I remember him breaking onto the scene so well and then just looking at stats and going, oh, he only played 21 games for us before. It (laughs) almost felt like a whole era. Um, I don't know whether we'll be seeing Gareth Bale back in a couple of years as well. You know, really getting (laughs) the band back together and then um, looks like Lalana probably won't be coming back if he's already... Out to sort out, out at Brighton, but um, interesting to see the uh, the some of the Saints youth proteges coming back uh, uh, like that. Um, Michael, do you have anything else that you wanted to kind of get out? Anything in your notes that you feel we haven't touched on yet? Yeah, I'm pleased you said that. I've got literally one more thing to say, which was that uh, I like Southampton a lot, and I'm sure you guys have picked up on this already. But I like Southampton a lot because of the all important factor of their shirt numbers which are as close to 1 to 11 in the league as you can get. So at the weekend, it was, uh, I think it was 9 of the 11 wore 1 to 11 shirt numbers. The exceptions were Armstrong, who should be number 7 really, but obviously Shane Long still got that. So Armstrong 17, so that's the you know the second best that he could, uh, he could choose. And at the back, it was Vestergaard and, and Bednarek. Vestergaard is 4. Bednarek is is 35 rather than five, which I think Stevens has got at the moment, hasn't he? So you can kind of cross out two numbers, you know, make Bednarek's 35 into a five and make Armstrong 17 into a seven. And you've got the one to 11, which I just, 
uh, yeah, again, a bit of a throwback, and it's just quite nice to see. What do you think the, the kind of new signings feel like when they get like a number 26 or something and they're just saying, oh, <laughs> goodness. Yeah, well, Walcott was very keen to get his old uh, 32 shirt, wasn't he? So, um, yeah, it's always difficult when a new signing comes in and they've got to make do with a, a rubbish shirt number. But it was nice that Walcott had had something that meant to uh, meant something to him. But, uh, yeah, there's, there's some silly shirt numbers. That, I mean, Alexander-Arnold being 66 always annoys me. So um, Southampton have no reason to get me agitated, which is uh, very good. Great, good good uh, reason to follow, uh, you know, second side or whatever for um, <laughs> as any there, uh, Michael. So um, thank you very, very much for joining us on the Saints FC podcast um, this week. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, if you want to email in, let us know what you thought of the podcast. Do it uh, saintsfcpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, I do absolutely implore you all to go and check out um, uh, Michael's writing on The Athletic and the Zonal Marking podcast um, and pick up one or both of his books if you haven't read them uh, either. Uh, the Mixer, great kind of um, uh, kind of year-by-year year Premier League history and then Zonal Marking, the making of modern European football, really interesting uh, book as well. And, and um, both of them have, have some kind of interesting Saints mentions. I think kind of the, the European football one, we get quite a few mentions with the Pochettino and Koeman sort of Saints. So if you want to read about that, it's, it's, it's worth having a little look at. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for, for joining us. Um, it's, it's been a real pleasure to kind of catch up again and who knows when we'll next kind of persuade you to come on again? Yeah, no, it's been a pleasure. Um, and obviously good timing with that Everton win. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure that uh, sure I'll be back and uh, hopefully after another really positive result. Yeah, that would be great. Right, ladies and gentlemen, we'll see you next time. <laughs>